Hello and welcome to another episode of the Dan Assor Show, supported by TF Connect, Tarsus Group, Terrapin and 19 Group, and the show's official venue sponsor, Carbon Neutral Conference and Exhibition Centre, BDC London, who are currently setting their sights on reaching net zero before 2030. Visit bdc.london for more information. Please check out all of my content on danassor.com and be notified first about new episodes by subscribing to my YouTube channel and by following me on Apple Podcasts and Spotify platforms. Duncan, for this, to start off with, uh, for those that aren't aware, it'd be useful if you could just give a brief introduction uh, to the business um, uh, that you're a chief exec of. Sure. Um, firstly, thanks for having me on the uh, the podcast. I feel no like problem. I'm following some uh, some previous guests. So very <laughs> um, Rapid News Group um, been around for a while now, um, but probably only a grown up business for the last ten years. Um, we're a B two B publisher and event organizer, um, and increasingly digital uh, technology provider. Um, we specialize in B2B technology. So we operate the plastic space, the packaging space, the metal space, and the 3D printing space. That's our um, our sweet spot. Uh, over the years, every time we try to do something outside of that, we've invariably spent an awful lot of money yeah, and not gone very far. So sure. over the years, we've our, uh, our, uh, our happy place is in that space, and, and, and that's where we focus. So um, a lot of brands. Um, some overseas interests as well, um, which I'm sure we'll get into. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, that, that's us. Thank you. Yeah, we're going to talk about specialisms uh, as well, because it's definitely, I think, um, you know, a word of which is sort of on vogue at the moment. Um, I We're going to obviously talk about present day and the future. Uh, but if you can indulge me, I'd like to take you back, if I can, <laughs> to the... Uh, the dark deep days of um, the pandemic. I won't dwell on it for too long. But um, in particular, I know that you were one of the companies that were dramatically affected, should I say, um, from the situation in China, uh, which yeah. obviously closed before UK, before Europe and most of the rest of the world. So not to be salacious, but I'm just definitely interested in a retrospective look at that time. So if you can just give us a view of, of how it affected uh, the business, specifically in that region, sure. that would be appreciated. Well, I think I think any any organiser of any of any event, but certainly one that has multiple events in multiple territories, I think we all probably look back at that now and, and wonder how we got through it. Um, probably with a degree of pride that we did, um, because it was certainly sure. a tough period. Um, I can remember flying out to uh, our Japanese event back in the January 2020, having just postponed our China event that was due in March, which obviously wasn't going to go ahead. And um, that was the start of it. You know, Japan was the last time I got on a plane for two and a half years, and you know, it was kind of a, a crazy period. We, um, we we postponed some UK events as soon as I got back from Japan and, and carried on postponing events for, for the next six to 12 months in various ways. Um, 
I think I've said before in another place that I don't think we ever wanted to be an expert in postponing shows, but we certainly became that. We'd never postponed one before, but sure. here we are becoming pretty good. Yeah. So um, I think, you know, you know, we, as a small business, we, we did all the right things. We, you know, we, we, we battened down hatches, we furloughed, we, we took out some sea bills, um, loans to help us through the piece. And, and pleasingly, we, we got through the other side. And I think our brands are strong in the UK, that helped. And of course, we've got the media side, which meant we could continue trading through the piece, which a lot of exhibition organizers didn't have that capacity. Yeah. Um, we watched a lot of people um, uh, kind of pivot to digital. Um, we already did digital, so we weren't pivoting, but we certainly weren't investing as much in, in virtual events as a number of companies did because we always felt that, that live events would bounce back and, and sure enough, slowly but surely they did. I think the incident you refer to in China um, is an interesting one. So we pretty much ran our shows in China um, all the way through, uh, albeit very Chinese focused shows in the end. They typically were more sure. international before that. Um, and we'd run in 20, uh, late 20 and, and, and 21, but there was actually the show in 22 that got um, kiboshed in the most oh, spectacular okay. way okay. because literally the night, the night before we'd opened, we built the show and at 11 o'clock the night before we opened in well, September 22, the authorities said you can't. And that was that. So um, yeah. we had a show built, ready to go, and um, frantic calling of our, from our Chinese team at 11 o'clock the night before the show to explain to exhibitors that um, although they painstakingly built their show, um, they weren't going to be allowed into it the next morning, which, um, as you can imagine, was, was a challenge for them. Um, and of course, we sat in the UK, weren't really able to do an awful lot other than provide more our support. So, um, yeah, definitely interesting times and challenging situations that yeah. um, I don't think any of us to, so. No, I'm sure. Um, I'm sure we could probably uh, uh, compile a book of stories of um, incidents that happened to exhibition organisers uh, in maybe ten or fifteen years' time, and, and look back at it. But thank you. I guess I'm also interested in sort of um, you know, obviously there's a lot of doubt, there's a lot of indecision, um, people are fearful, you know, staff, exhibitors, uh, everyone to do with uh, the communities you serve. Um, as the CEO, because it's easy for us to think about everyone else and think, oh, you know, the bosses are all right and this, that, and the other. What, how did how did it affect you personally, and how did you deal with that? Um, I think you're right. You kind of you, you kind of you want to look after your staff first and foremost, and I, I kind of took solace in the fact that we were always trying to do the right thing by them. Um, as difficult as it was in the case, sure. Um, so we, we, we kept the staff informed of, of where we were, you know, we were really sort of open and honest about you know, furlough and what that meant and, and what our plans were coming back and largely um, you know, people stuck with us for sure and I think every event organiser experienced this, there were some that felt that the sector was just too risky to you know, continue sure. relying on getting their mortgage paid from and to leave and I think that, that, that skill shortage will, will continue to, to hurt us as an industry for a period of time until it rebalances. But um, I think, you know, I, I kind of slept at night knowing that a lot of other organizers were in the same boat. And actually, obviously, I joined a lot sure. of the AEO calls. Um, at the time and, yeah. You know, we, we were all sort of rowing frantically trying to bail the boat out. But at least I took solace in the fact that there were a lot of us in the same boat. And that plus the fact that, you know, you're trying to do the right thing. Um, we always knew that 
we had robust brands. We got a lot of support from our customers, um, and so those things kind of kind of made it okay. But for sure, there were there were there were mornings when you know, I start work at eight o'clock, and by nine o'clock, think this is going to be one of those days again when the government took a left turn, and we thought we were going sure. right and that kind of stuff. But you um yeah. You know, as a leader, you kind of have to you kind of have to try and put some of your own personal um, feelings to one side because at the end of the day, I'm responsible for people paying that mortgage. Um, sure, that has to come for every your own personal sort of wonders. Sure, uh, it's interesting. Lots of people have said to me about the power of the community, uh, all levels during that time, um, and how you know no one wanted to be in it, but the fact you're all in it together uh definitely helped so strength through adverse adversity i think um yeah. well, interesting enough one of the one of the most interesting things to come out of that was you know I, we're up in the north so we, we don't we're not really on the circuit from an event organizer point yeah of um but we're members of the aeo and obviously chris was working really really hard on behalf of us all with government and those calls that were sort of ceo based calls actually meant that my connections were, were probably expanded in, in, in terms of com, uh, sure. colleagues that were, were playing role. And some of that's actually resulted in us doing some really interesting co-locations down the road, which, um, so there are, there, are, um, there are positives that came out yeah. of the case, uh, and that continues to be the case. So um, yeah, you have to take the positive from all of this stuff, um, otherwise you, you, you go stir crazy. So yeah. every little we celebrated. <laughs> hugely and that kind of carried us through the next chaos piece so um, sure yeah definitely a learning experience and we're, we're better for it even though it didn't feel like it at the time thank you hi i hope you enjoyed the podcast so far just going to take a brief pause to tell you a little bit more about our official venue sponsor the business design center the bdc is london's most stylish venue playing host to hundreds of conferences and exhibitions every year. It is also the permanent home to over 125 businesses who occupy the offices and showrooms based there all year round. Opened over 36 years ago in 1986 and formerly the Royal Agricultural Hall, the building was rescued from demolition in 1981 by entrepreneur Sam Morris and was fully restored and reopened as the UK's first integrated trade exhibition and conference complex. Today, the BDC attracts almost 1 million visitors every year. Sustainability is at the forefront of everything they do at the BDC with a goal to reach net zero before 2030. For over 13 years, it has been a certified carbon neutral venue and the steps they have taken to improve their impact on the planet have been recognised within the events industry and further. The BDC has received recognition with multiple awards, including Exhibition News CSR Award in both 2018 and 2019, and more recently, the EN ESG Award in 2022. Please visit bdc.london for more information. Now back to the podcast. Um, want to talk about the business as it stands today and, and then obviously talk about some challenges for the industry. Um, having a good look through your website, some of your material, what I get a sense of running through the description that I read is the theme that the business has always been about connections. Um, just explain what you what you mean by that. Um, well, look, we we exist to bring businesses together. Um, you can dress it up how you will, but in all the areas that we operate, um, our job is to bring buyers together with technology providers and you know, hope that they will acquire technology and make their own organisations 
uh, more efficient or more productive um, or more competitive in an international market, whatever it might be. And so whether that's, you know, readers reading a magazine and interacting with a print advert, which granted is less frequent these days, it's still an important part of what we do. Our digital um, plays where we do things like webinars or, or newsletters, again, it's taking technology information to people who want to access that. Um, and obviously this, the shows are the purest manifestation of, of bringing people together to, to access technology. Um, so everything we do and all those sort of, sort of threads ultimately designed to bring people together and create business so we often refer to ourselves as a catalyst and in all the sectors that we operate in that's the mission so great quality content really good insights uh, hopefully a really good data set um, and then we create the environment for those two to come together yeah it's interesting because as you said you know um, the business rapid news has obviously always been specialists in certain areas and also always serve those communities with um, multiple platforms. So you've mentioned some of them yeah. there. Uh, during the pandemic, obviously, lots of trade shows were rushing to to do that in reverse. Um, um, and what you do, again, speaking to, you know, I've got the privilege of speaking to lots of CEOs at some of the organisers. Lots of the M&A activity in the industry is definitely being dictated by um, picking up you know, shows, but also shows that have other media that are serving specialist communities. Um, do you see that generally, do you think as, a, as an industry, there's going to be more of that? So people are going to be, I think the word during the pandemic, I don't know how much it used now, is, is omni-channel. Um, but just, just serving communities in different ways, uh, do you think there's going to be just a more of that going forward? I think I think it's really interesting actually. A lot of the event organizers were tanking along doing just pure play events, which were yeah. incredibly profitable, um, with no sign on the horizon that they were ever going to stop. And of course along came COVID and everybody had to rethink because they couldn't generate revenue in, in square meter sales, which had been going so well. Um, and of course, for a period of time, everybody said that that was the end of exhibitions and you know, live events wouldn't come back. We never subscribed to that um, in any way, shape or form. Um, we knew the power of digital, but we also knew that it couldn't replace the power of face-to-face. -face. So for us, it was, it was a question of sort of working our way through it. But the big underpin for all of that was our ability to talk to our audiences in multiple ways when we couldn't do shows. And so whether that was newsletters or webinars or the print magazine, or the website or social media. Um, and I think what you've seen is a number of event organizers that you might have turned previously pure play event organizers have now said, well, actually, maybe there is some value in the content team and the community around it. So um, I don't expect it to change. And I expect more organizations to kind of come towards the model that we've got. Although, to be fair, a lot of them are already doing a lot of work in the data space and in the insight sure. space. So, Probably just doubling down and realizing how important that element is if you want to retain a position in the community or the market that you serve. Sure. And you mentioned data a few times, and obviously um, it's ever more important and the ways that we can now manipulate data through AI and, and, uh, and other technology. Um, obviously, the quickens the pace to give us the insights that you just referred to. I mean, we, we've always seen data as absolutely key to what we do. If you don't have a good data set, then nobody comes to your shows, nobody reads your magazines, and ultimately you end up with with shells that don't go very far and don't deliver. Sure. And that just results in yeah. Um, so 
So we've always been, you know, we've always worked hard on our data. You know, our magazines typically are BPA audited. Our shows you know, have been uh, audited in the past and will be again. Um, so from that point of view, I think data is absolutely essential. And without that, you can't deliver. Um, but further, I mean, I think the real the real driver here is the ability to segment, and, and, and that really feeds into the marketing side. So if you can take a really tailored message to somebody who you know is a pretty good target with a, with a, a set of really good reasons to get out of the office, I think that's where um, one of the key focuses for us. But obviously AI and how we use that is, is super important. I can't profess to even have got my head around what that means for the event industry sure. or the content industry. Although it will mean something, um, so we've got a task force internally starting now to to pick apart the noise and try and understand what that really means for for our business. Um, I'm sure there'll be some wins, and I'm sure there'll be some reasons for us to adapt how we do things. It's the same when you know, digital publishing arrived. You know, we had to change the way we we did print magazines because there was a new thing on the horizon. I think in all of these cases, much in the same as the sort of digital events are going to take over live events. Once something new appears, there's a, there's a rush to kind of invest and understand yeah. it. Rightly or wrongly, we've always been, because probably as a smaller company, we don't have oodles of cash to just invest in this stuff. We've always been more of a, right, let's see what this really means. And then kind sure. of gradually pick it, pick the bits that make good sense for us. Um, but, you know, when we, I tried to do a virtual event on a CD-ROM back in the late 90s. It was terrible <laughs> then. We knew it was terrible when we got yeah. the pandemic. And so we were okay with just sitting and waiting to see what the right course of action was. And actually, the platform we use now um, span out of all of that. Um, and it's kind of been a digital platform that now has become more of a live event platform. But what it does is it does enable us to extend the, the time that the live event is viable for our exhibitors. And so we've used some of that, if you like, virtual event technology to enhance what we do. Yeah. So again, a good example waiting to, to find the sweet spot in the technology to help us accelerate on the ship rather than plowing Yeah, and I agree with you. Rather than just using it for the for the sake of it, I guess also as a relatively small business, you you can test things quite quickly as well and see what works and and what and what doesn't work. But they all there is a cost, if not in pounds, shillings, dollars, or euros, but in terms of um, people's time, you know, and also in a smallish business, they've got their 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 jobs to do so. Need to be conscious of that. Yeah, that's the most most useful parts of the pandemic is you know, we could do a lot of stuff. So yeah. we did get to work on the business in terms of the vision and some of the structure. So again, no, you take the positives out of, of a difficult situation yeah. and use it to your advantage. So yeah. you've recently had um, some shows: TCT three hundred and sixty yes. Birmingham, uh, MedTech Innovation also in Birmingham in June, and MediLink UK. Um, I'm reading those off my piece of paper. Um, okay. <laughs> always interested to know, um, sort of post-pandemic and post-post, because you know we're, we're you know that's in the rearview mirror. What are the main uh, things that have you noticed in terms of the demands of maybe exhibitors, attendees, other stakeholders in your products? How have they changed? Do you think over the last two or three years? And I'll let you go. Um, <laughs> I think I think that we're trying to drag exhibitors to use digital technology to really enhance their experience at the show. Um, and there's a real range of, of uptake on that. You've got some companies that are super on it, you know, 
did proper outreach to the visitors before the show, had meetings scheduled when they arrived at the show and continued to do outreach subsequently. And there are some that just didn't use it at all. So you've got a real range in the space that we operate in. You've got sort of one-man band engineering companies at the lower end that are taking a small stand and it's their entire sort of focus for a month. And But they're only going to do the show. And then you've got other companies that have got people, you know, teams that can work the audience in a different way. So um, that's an interesting challenge because we've obviously invested in the technology because we believe it will deliver a greater ROI to the, to, to the customer. But actually getting them to really invest the time to understand how to do that is frustrating yeah. in some places. But that's a piece of work that we've got to, we've got to handle. I think what I would have said to you three weeks ago prior to those events at the beginning of June Probably has changed a little bit in terms of how you get people out of the office. Um, yeah. And it's quite an interesting reflection, really. So we ran our first events for those two shows, TCT and MedTech, in September 21. So I think it was the third show post-pandemic um, and all the chaos that that brought with it in terms of how you got into the building and the, sort of, you know, the COVID passports and everything else. Um, so we ran that really, really early in the piece. And then we had a really short runway to June 22, which again, was still quite fraught with challenges because we were locked down early 22, sure. uh, 20, 22, yeah. Um, and we didn't really know that we could market the show until about eight weeks out. But people were kind and they said, well, great job for running the show and, and all the rest of it. But we knew our conversion rates were on the floor. And, you know, yeah. people had come out, they were good quality, but there was less of them. And I really didn't know what we were going to get at the beginning of June. I had an inclination from a registration point of view, um, groups of attendees coming from big companies and all the rest of it. But you never really know. Looking back now, I can see that the 21 and 22 shows were effectively a shadow of what trade shows should be. And we had staff that had been through us sure. through that cycle, but had never really seen trade shows live like um, that, like they can be. And actually, 23 was those two shows at the beginning of June were, were really. A, return to form and importantly the point i'm trying to make here is that the conversion rates are back at the level that we saw pre-pandemic and that tells me once and for all that the appetite for live shows going out to live shows and going out as groups to you know, technology source is, is back close to where we were so that gives us a lot of um, confidence that the job of getting people out of the office is perhaps returning to more pre-COVID levels yeah. because for a period of time it was really difficult. You know, you worked your backside off getting registrations yeah. to the level that you expected, but then your conversion rate was like a third of what yeah. it used to be. And, and that was kind of tough to take for a while. It also made marketing shows horrendously expensive. Um, we've seen a much better return on our marketing this time. So I'm hopeful that, that that will sort of settle and then we can just get on with the job of really defining great quality content for, for, for visitors to come to. And obviously part of that is a really good array of exhibitors and then great conferencing, great learning and, and other elements that bring the show to life. And there's a lot of talk around festivalization of events. And yeah, I was going to come on to that. Not necessarily that, that, that buzzword, but there's a, there's a, there's a piece in that by giving people lots of reasons to come out. And I think as event organizers, that's our job is to increasingly push the boundary around what is it that makes somebody come to an event? So that's something else. Really. Yeah, and I think, you know, you're deep into the markets you serve. I guess you're always, well, I say always, in different ways at certain times, asking what they want as well, right? You know, it's easy for us, for an industry to say, let's festivalise this event, let's do this, let's do that. But actually, some industries, 
don't want that, don't need that. They want to come for the reasons they're always coming for. Um, so we, I guess we need to be careful as event organisers, similar to what we just said about event technology and AI, about just picking up on these sort of on vogue um, ideas and then implementing them. Um, and it might be a bit too disruptive. Would you agree with that? I, absolutely. I mean, I think the bottom line is if you do something that's different, you better make sure it delivers ROI to you. Yeah. Otherwise, you're just wasting money and, 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 and no discernible upside. So it's quite interesting. Um, in the 3D printing space and TCT area that we have, our UK market's quite, um, quite well-defined, quite mature. Uh, adoption of that technology is quite advanced. We're now into a sort of an education piece about how you optimize the use and you choose the right technology. Whereas in contrast, the Chinese show that we have TCT Asia, which is in the same market, is very much about selling technology and introducing technology. So there are kind of different points in the in the in the adoption cycle. Partly because the UK was an early adopter of the technology, and partly because China's a little further behind in that regard. Uh, although coming up on the rails really quickly, which isn't an, an unusual story in tech space in China. Um, so, you know, actually, you don't need to innovate your features quite as much as you do in the UK and China. And, and I would say that's probably, you know, you take a view of where the, where the show is in the cycle, you look at the market it's offering. And in some instances, a pure play exhibition where people buy stuff and, 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 and go home is absolutely yeah. fine at the moment. We'll see how it all develops. So it's just about keeping your eyes open, trying to read trends within the tech sectors that yeah. you can then follow and adapt. And um, I was going to ask you about, the, the, I guess the um, the regional differences. And you've got a show. TCT is in Shanghai in September, and you're in Japan, I think, um, at the beginning of next year, twenty four. Um, in terms of what their expect, what what their expectations are, both again exhibitors, delegates, in terms of the content, the type of event, is it very different to, to the UK? Um, if someone was listening and never been to a show in those regions, is it easy just to literally geoclone it and that's it? What, what, what do you have to do to to get to, you know, in front of those people that want they want? It's an interesting one because I can be quite picky and say, oh, there's, you know, there's lots of differences and there, there are subtle differences, but Sure. Ultimately, we, what we do is, and this is, I think, all the truth for any event organization, is if you lose sight of what your primary role is, which is to generate business for your exhibitors and generate you know, learning opportunities for your visitors, then um, you know, you, you're going to come unstuck pretty quickly. So, from that point of view, um, there's a fundamental that runs across every trade show in every market, in every, you know, every, every continent. But you know, from a point of view of say content on TCT, you might find that um, in the UK we'll be dealing with a lot of, of innovative ideas that come largely from the UK, and that's what our program would look like. In China or Japan, they're really keen to hear what's going on in Europe, so you have sort of slightly different uh, geographic spread on the conference program. Um, you know, some markets use resellers, whereas some use, you know, the OEMs will go in directly, depending on the size of the market. So there are subtle differences, and of course, you, you know, over the years, you kind of pick them up and they become quite sure. normal and natural. Um, but ultimately, you just got to retain focus on getting as many good quality visitors as you can through the door, because that means your exhibitors will rebook. Sure, you know, make too many bones about it. They're the people yeah. that 
every commercial. That's what the commercial model calls them. So keep focus on that. The same as it ever was. I just want to move on quickly. Uh, again, what comes through um, a lot of the stuff I read about the business is the importance and role of external partners. Now, that could be, I guess, a trade association, could be a co-location partner. Um, bring, bring that to life and, and the importance of partners in serving specialist communities that you, you operate in. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one because we're, we're a relatively small business and we didn't have and still don't have offices around the globe like you know, the, some of the larger organizations do. But we had an ambition to, to take some of the brands into new markets we saw opportunities and so ultimately we 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 work to find partners that can help us do that um the majority do the heavy lifting operationally around shows in, in the countries they operate in so um but we've got different models and we have a jv in china which is a 50 50 um jointly owned business with with bnu exhibitions in shanghai which is you know believe it or not will be be our 10th year next year of running TC Asia in China, which is blows my mind because I can still remember the first time I got on a plane to Shanghai and it wasn't that long ago. Yeah. Um, we've got partnership in Japan, there's a slightly different partnership in America. We've had all sorts of different approaches. I think in the end, you, you pick the right partnership for the market you're operating in. One of the things we've always been really clear, clear on is we have to do what's right by the market. So when we were looking in America, we go ourselves we had experience of running trade shows over their operations so we even had that capability um but the market didn't need another show you know it needed it needed us as a 30-year um experienced organization in that space and another one uh, over there to kind of come together to drive that event so that was the right choice so yeah we could have run something ourselves but actually it wasn't right for the market um and uh, obviously over a period of time you work out a financial agreement that works well and so um, you know, we, we went that way. Um, I'm not ruling out our own individual launches in other countries, but you know, it, it entirely depends on the sector, the, the territory, and then whether you can find the right partner, which is also part of the issue. You know, there are some territories we've been looking for partners for, for a decade and not found the person sure. you can sit down with and, and think, yes, I can do business with you. Whereas in other territories, it's been you know, really, really quick. Um, well, I guess that's just the organic nature of the different territories you're operating. But gradually, you know, as we've grown as a business, we get more and more people coming to us saying, hey, I can help yeah. you here, I can help you there. So, yeah, a little bit. The visibility makes it a little bit more, it, it, a little easier right, to, to escape these people. But um, no, it, it's, it's going into the pandemic, we've made a decision. We've done so much overseas growth that we were going to have a bit of a pause on it. And lo and behold, we had our pause. So we're back out there now actively looking to uh, to develop our brands in, in, in new territories, particularly as travel's really starting to open up again. So sure. We'll see where that So what watch this space. Um what I talk to you yeah, what I talk to you about talent. Uh again, I think it says on your website, we don't hire talent, we hire passion with talent. We create a good place to work and support good causes. Um what what role do you believe company culture plays in driving um, I guess organizational growth, employee satisfaction. Yeah, I think it's really important that we do that. Um, I think the workplace has changed hugely, uh, and you know, talent these days is is rightly picky about where it, it spends its time. So it's important that we create an environment where people are happy to spend the large chunk of their 
their, their waking hours. Um, but we've, you know, we've developed from there. We've got you know, a really good flexible working um, policy um, that we've built. That means that people can take work from home days sure. throughout the year, and you know they can start when they want when they come in the office and finish when they want as long as they do you know, within sort of certain parameters. So we've worked hard to create an environment where it's it's interesting for people to come to work, but it doesn't overtake their own personal lives. Um, and then you just want to develop people. Um, what that means is occasionally good people leave you, um, which is frustrating, but you can't look at it and go, oh, I should have was trying to hold on, hang on to them. You kind of like let them go occasionally. And fortunately, one or two of them have gone and come back, which is, which is always nice. Yeah. Um, but we've got a really good group. Um, I think the pandemic shook out some of the people who maybe weren't as invested in the company as we would like because they were they naturally decided they were going to go off and do other things. I think the pandemic was really interesting for that point of view in terms of getting any talent, good, bad, ugly, or otherwise, sort of assess what they really wanted to do in their lives. And what we've been left with, I think, is a really, really good group of people that we've then been able to adapt our environment. We're in a new office here, which is really, really nice compared to the one we were in pre-pandemic. So all of those things go to, towards creating an environment that hopefully people will come to work in and feel comfortable in. And then on beyond that, it's about you know, making sure that we do the right things by people, you know, develop them, support them, give them the opportunity to learn, put them on planes to amazing cities on the other side of the world that they never thought they were going to go to, um, and, and just create a situation where you know, we, we build a real team. Now, we don't always get it right. And, you know, there'll always be somebody that you, you can't make it work for. And, you know, for that, I'm, I'm always a little bit sad, particularly when they're really good people. But... We're at sort of 50 people now, and when you get to that size, you know that not everybody is going to be a long-term hire. You, you hire a lot of people, and I have done over the years. And you know, whilst I can look at a, a group of people and think they were all amazing hires for each one of those, is probably one that didn't work out for whatever reason. And sometimes that would have been our business, or not us not getting it right at that point. But we we strive to make less and less of those mistakes, and I think we're making progress in those areas. Sure, thank you. So, I mean, I guess the, the message is. You know, you as the leader, the business has to keep evolving um, to, you know, retain, acquire new talent. You know, there's been lots of changes over the last few years. You know, I come from a generation where it would have been unheard of when I first went into work. I want to work from home or can I leave this or can I do that? And it, it can be difficult. You know, again, I've spoken to lots of CEOs, both on and off camera, that, you know, they do things they got to do. doesn't always sit with them because they come from you know, a different place or a different generation, but I guess you've got to move with the times. Yeah, I mean, look, my, my, my generation, I don't think it's a huge amount of difference to yours down there. But looking at the lack of power, they're probably about the same age. Um, but, um, you know, well, going into the pandemic, I, I always had a little bit of suspicion about people working from home, where they're going to put the work sure. in, you know, yeah. people watching the telly. I don't mind admitting that. And, you know, that's part of the evolution that I've gone through as a leader is saying, well, actually, no, let's not set the bar for the lowest common denominator. So let's set the bar for the, for the, yeah. the top people and people that are going to commit. And, and so we've got this really, really good, flexible, open policy, which is designed around allowing people to make adult choices about when and where they work, as long as they do that work. And, yeah. and so those people that do so, for generally get found out in that process so that was a that was a piece of, of me changing through the pandemic yeah. but i think yeah 
as I said earlier, the pandemic changed the way a lot of people think about what they do uh, and how they do it. Um, but you you have to evolve. I mean, I think you know, when I started, I was at a you know, classified sales call at Miller Freeman in a tower block in Woolwich. Um, you know, when you made your sale, you stood on the bell and you know then yeah. you got back on the phone and we only we had no email one green screen between five of us you know it was it was it was very different and i think as much as as that you look back at that and i look back at it quite fondly it was a great grounding for but but the world has changed and people's expectations have changed and as a sure. leader of a business um that wants to attract new talent because it needs to um you have to adapt and so consequently you, you make those shifts so sure I think the leader, me, the leader of me 20 years ago would look at this one and go, I'm not sure you're the same guy, but that's okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm comfortable with it. Yeah. We can, we, I'm sure we can swap tales of the early 90s um, when people used to smoke at their desks. Um, <laughs> so definitely a different world. You just now look back and go, I can't believe that happened. <laughs> Listen, you, Duncan, you've been with the business, if I'm not mistaken. Um for almost 18 years yeah probably that makes me sound really um lots of talk you know lots of i guess the younger generations i think it's gen z get them all wrong you know people they're not told that the messages you know don't necessarily stay somewhere in one place there's always something else that's maybe have a look at this and do that um what what has led to you remaining in one business, albeit in different roles, or maybe that's the reason uh, for such a period of time. Yeah, I mean, I think I started in '97, maybe, um, yeah. and did about five years, and often did some other things. So, you know, in my early career, I was quite open to trying different things and, and, and getting different experience. But I, the, the original directors of the business, asked me to come back in 2005, and, and then since then, really, you know, I've, I've had a a pretty good sort of churn of roles and progression, which has meant that I've always been challenged and I've always been um, given additional responsibility, whether that was people or, or P&L. And, and so I've, I've, I've kind of grown up here and, and, and obviously we've done some pretty successful things. So, um, but I'm now a shareholder as well. So okay. from that point of view, you know, I, I my work is not done here, but I'm, I'm also, I'm, I'm pretty personally invested in what we do. Um, I think that's good um, from a point of view of, of the way I drive the business forward. And uh, there's never a, a point where I, I don't put the extra yard in. But but equally, um, you know, I can see from outside that it might look as well. Maybe I should have some extra experience. But I've had some pretty good experience um, in, in in lots of different challenges, and whether that's crisis management through the pandemic and things like that. Versus, you know, overseas development. So for me, it's been it's been a it's been a, a fortunate path. Sure. Um, major shareholders back me um, to to run the business for him, and, and you know, been a big part of, of of what we've done. So from that point of view, it's always been it's never been a situation where I've I've felt the need to look over over the fence. And we've got a lot of people in the business who have been here for ten years plus, who've been along the journey yeah. with me. So we've built a, a good core team here that. Like I said earlier, if you look to develop people and you look to give them opportunity to develop their skill sets and their experiences, then then hopefully you you do retain good talent, and I think that's that's something we've been pretty good at. You touched upon it before, but um, 
just uh, in summary, what do you think are the most important characteristic and traits for a good leader to have? Gosh, it's a Pandora's box. <laughs> that uh, I think empathy is important. Um, I think when you lead a team, whether it's 10, 20, 50, um, the bigger it gets, the more exposures you have to, to, to personal um, challenges that those individuals have. And certainly in my younger years, I was, I was particularly tolerant of, of, of the chaos that came with, with, with leading a team um, and the challenges that, that kind of appear, I think, over the years, you develop a an understanding and that's partly to do with having your own families and all that kind of stuff and so i think empathy is really important i think just staying focused is really important you know where are we trying to get to um lose sight of the mission and you tend to drift um so that that you know, i'm reminding everybody that's within the group that you you lead and keeping them on track is really important and I, i'm just a big one for effort you know i can forgive all manner of, of screw-ups and, and mistakes as long as people are trying as hard as they possibly can um and that for me is really important. So, you know, coasters need not apply. We, we want volunteers, not hostages, so to speak. Thank you. And um, obviously you run, you, 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 sorry, obviously you've got publications, but obviously a good focus of your business is events. Um, what do you love most? What do you love most about uh, the events industry and hosting events? Um, I... You know, I think like anybody, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't set out to be an event organizer. I, I don't, I've listened to many of your interviews. And I don't think there's a single person that was ever gone. Yeah, I definitely wanted to be an event when I was at school. Yeah. I think we all fall into it. Um, but, but when you do, you find a, you know, a group of people that are just so dedicated, creative, um, innovative, uh, and focused. Again, you know, you, when you've got, you, know, you, you think about when you turn up on site for Google to build a show. You know, there's a group of people that come together for that, you know, health and safety teams, floor managers, and a lot of these people aren't permanent employees. But yeah, everybody just gets on and everybody focuses and everybody wants to do the very best they can for the exhibitors and make sure that they work really well. Um, there's something about that. So for me, that little bit of friction of excitement when you get on site for a build. And you know, as a CEO, what the hell am I doing at the build? You know, rocking at nine o'clock when it opens, but that's not the way I operate. I want to be there. I want to support the team. I want to be there to help troubleshoot or just pat people on the back. So, for that point of view, I'm always around the builds, and I, I still quite like that sort of thing. So, it's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a physical manifestation of what we do. So, um, it's nice to be around. I think the thing that's also funny is the the post sort of show blues, which I've seen. Yeah over the years you do you do a show it doesn't matter whether it's in the uk or yeah. not there's this sort of period where you, you know, you've got this jet lag afterwards which is probably the bit i don't like about it because it, you know it's kind of but, but also it's part of the process and it's about reflecting on the success of the event you've done so um probably the actual bit of delivering the event is the best bit i mean nobody nobody loves stressing over sales targets or operational cost lines but they're part of the process but if you go through that process, then delivering the live event and seeing the exhibitors having a good show and visitors you know, saying it was amazing is, is, yeah. is probably the piece you would. Fantastic. Thank you. Listen, Duncan, um, really appreciative of your time. We wish you the very best of luck with uh, the remainder of your shows this year. Uh, I know, as we just discussed, you've got a show in mm -hmm. Shanghai um, and you've got uh, Interplast, which is coming up in Birmingham as well in September. So um, we look forward to. Uh, 
seeing the business and the shows and the publications going from strength to strength. Thank you, Dan. Really enjoyed the chat and uh, thanks for the opportunity. Thank you.